Aloha, y'all. This is Rick Crawford, your host of The Sustainable Angler. Uh, Before I get into today's interview, I wanted to take this opportunity to mention that uh, we've got a brand new website up. It's www.thesustainableangler.com. You can find everything from past episodes, um, a new blog, and also a carbon neutral company directory. So you can find fly fishing guides, shops, lodges, brands, and even nonprofits that are committed to going carbon neutral by 2030. So I would encourage you to support those businesses that are working to protect what we all love. Um, But today's uh, interview, I am really excited about I interviewed Joel R. Johnson. He's currently the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer of the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. Uh, But Joel has built his career marrying what he's passionate about, which is fly fishing and conservation. So in this episode, we're gonna discuss everything from marketing for good, which is also known as building purpose-driven brands, to environmental threats to fish species, to really having a deep conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion in the fly fishing industry, and how diversity, equity, and inclusion is connected directly to sustainability. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies a sustainable business consultancy whose mission is to help you measure and improve your sustainability performance, reduce your overall greenhouse gas emissions, and help you tell a compelling story to customers through transparent reporting. Emerger Strategies is also a proud 1% for the Planet member, a founding member of the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance, and a carbon neutral business. To learn more, visit www.emergerstrategies.com. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Well, uh, again, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Joel Johnson. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I guess, you know, I wouldn't say it's super deep, but maybe um, involved. <laughs> I've been involved in the fly fishing community uh, on a number of different levels. Uh, for at least the last uh, decade or so, um, maybe going a little bit further back than that. And, and I've been fortunate to be involved in a number of different interesting ways. Uh, I have um, been involved on the nonprofit side of cold water and freshwater conservation, uh, as well as um, species-based conservation that are targeted by fly anglers from trout to bonefish, uh, permit and tarpon. And then, um, and I'll explain that. Um, and then also I have been um, in the marketing and communication side um, of communicating uh, to the fly fishing community um, through brands like Orvis and Scientific Angler. Um, and I can explain some more about that too in a minute. Um, and then, like you mentioned, Rick, I am an avid angler. Um, I fish whenever I get the invite and whenever I can, you know, um, and I have been, I've been an angler my whole life, but I've been fly fishing for the last decade. And, um, uh, I fish, I fly fish for all sorts of species, um, from, uh, bluegills and sunnies all the way up to tarpon, you know, you name it, redfish, carp, trout, um, uh, uh, large mouth and smallmouth bass stripers, you, you know, if it swims and will take fly, I will cast it to it. So, um, so yeah, so, uh, okay. So a little bit more about me. Um, I am, uh, I guess I'm in my, in my late forties and, um, I've been a marketing and advertising professional for most of my career. Um, I came out of, uh, uh, couple of good schools, Swarthmore and Northwestern, um, and then went into advertising in Chicago at some big agencies and worked in advertising agencies in Chicago, New York, and London, um, and uh, also in Washington, D.C., uh, where I am currently based. And um, 
over say 20, 25 years of advertising and PR work, developing strategies for campaigns for brands like Pepsi and Gillette and um, uh, many other well-known brands, um, I got to a point of burnout where I realized that I had all these kind of like storytelling superpowers. You know, I could I could make you, you know, <laughs> want to pick up the next uh, uh, Mountain Dew. But um, uh, I realized that, you know, that wasn't adding a lot to the world. And um, I really became interested in uh, supporting purpose-based brands. Purpose brands are brands that are out there to um, create a positive impact uh, on society and our planet. And I made that shift about um, about 15 years ago. And when I did that, it was like a whole world opened up to me. Uh, suddenly I realized that there were many other people like me working for brands and companies and organizations that wanted to use marketing for good. Um, so I did that when I landed in Washington, D.C. at a, uh, a firm called GM&B that was doing progressive at, um, uh progressive brands and progressive politics, uh, advertising and communications. And I, at that time, I had just really began to get interested in, in, in the possibility of working in conservation when an amazing opportunity opened up at Trout Unlimited. Uh, I happened to know the chief marketing officer there and I knew he had moved on. And so I reached out really quickly just to see you know, if they were going to rehire in that position and they were, and I had, uh, within, I think, um, 24 hours of reaching out, um, I, I was walking, uh, on Roosevelt Island, which is, a, um, the Roosevelt Memorial, uh, on the Potomac river with Chris Wood, the CEO, um, chatting about the future of Trout Unlimited. And 24 hours after that, I was hired as the chief marketing officer. And that really oh, changed my wow. mind. It was incredible. And um, it was like a dream come true. And, and it was, you know, it was a challenge. You know, I, you know, the nonprofit world doesn't pay as much. It's not as you know sexy, but um, and it's different. Um, you have different types of audiences. You have a board, you have grassroots community and members, and then you have your colleagues. Whereas, you know, the advertising and PR world is really all about uh, serving a client. So solution client. So I did take a little bit of that mentality into Trout Unlimited where I thought, OK, the members are my clients, you know, and I'm going to take this sort of ragtag team of, you know, ex-journalists and writers and videographers and photographers and PR guys and gals from around the organization and organize them into a kind of mini agency at TU, which is what I did. Um, and, uh, you know, for several years there, um, had the chance to um, just get completely ingrained in the fly fishing community and conservation community um, of North America. And I traveled all around the country to TU meetings um, and uh, also met with almost all of the major brands in the industry and, and developed friendships and contacts there. Um, by the time I left TU, I, I sat down and I wrote down every single river and every single stream that I could remember that I had fished during my time there. And it was like something in the order of 70 different rivers and bodies of water and um, uh, really amazing experience. That's, that's um, cool. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, after that time at Trout Unlimited, uh, I then um, followed another lifelong dream, which was to start my own ad agency. And I knew that that agency was going to work on purpose-driven brands um, and also, um, you know, just bring along my strengths and my passions. And so we had conservation clients and purpose-driven brands. And of course, I was very, very fortunate enough to have a, a couple of fly fishing clients. And this is where those brands come in. Uh, Orvis was a client um, for several years, as well as Scientific Anglers. And then uh, Bonefish Tarpon Trust was also a client. And these were all based on relationships that I had made when I, at my time at TU. And it was really amazing to be able to serve those, those brands and companies and, and nonprofits in a different capacity, helping them to do their storytelling to uh, uh, reach new audiences, you know, uh, to market new innovative products, and then also to um, expand um, uh, the, the, the footprint of their, of their, of their brands. 
Um, so I did that for about five years. Um, and then last year, you know, we obviously had the pandemic hit and things really dramatically took a turn and changed, changed the world, flipped it on its head. And I found myself um, stepping back from the agency and once again, making a change and looking back at conservation. Um, and I landed at a really fantastic foundation called the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation and uh, as their chief marketing officer and communications lead. And I've been doing that for the past year or so. Um, the, uh, the interesting thing about being at the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation is, and it's, it is having had the opportunity in the last year to work very closely with um, one of the greatest scientific minds and conservation um, heroes of the last 50 years. And that's, you know, E.O. Wilson um, is the author of like over 30 books, has two Pulitzer Prizes um, on subjects that range from sociobiology um, all the way up to uh, conservation, his Half Earth book, um, which was his last major book. Um, E.O. Wilson passed away in December of last year. Um, and uh, obviously I've been really busy um, working on all the communications about what's going to happen next for the foundation and, and, and talking a lot about his legacy. Um, and so that I've been really fortunate in my career to kind of, um, you know, to bring all of the things that I care about together uh, and I think what's emerged for me to use your, to use the emerger strategies name is um, uh, that I, I can and have made a successful life in conservation and communications, pursuing my passion around fishing. It's, it's kind of a weird, um, you know, mix to pull all these things together. Um, but it's what I care most about. So. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, that's incredible. And, and I can, I can totally relate to, to, to that feeling. And, and it's, it's really cool. Um, I mean, you've, you've, you have put together, I mean, working for the, the leaders and in, in fly fishing, whether it's in the nonprofit world or um, on, on the brand side. And that's, I mean, I think it's just awesome, right? I mean, you, 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 it's living the dream. You're marrying your passion for, for fishing and, and conservation and are, are able to uh, to make a living doing it. Not a lot of people can say that. So, so kudos to you. Um, but one of, one of the things there, there's a couple of different uh, and, and hearing your uh, story there. And, and there's a couple of things, a couple of ways I'd like to try and slice this um, to, to start. So, the first thing I really liked, you know, your marketing for good and and and, and purpose-driven brands. And I wondered if you could share an example or maybe just elaborate a little bit just on that idea for listeners out there who who may not be um, hip to that ter terminology, I guess. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, so I think that the, what we've seen in the last, I will say, 20 to 30 years is a seed change in the way um, uh, companies uh, and, and the brands that they, that they, that they create, whether it's for business or commercial use, um, have realized that when they go about making a profit, that there's an impact, there's a cost to that profit. And in many ways, that cost could be to society, um, but it also could be to our planet. Um, and the rise of sustainability has really brought science and transparency to the business practices of so many of these companies. And, and um, as a result, um, that's over the last 30 years, it's been internalized. Before it was kind of an outside in look, and now it's internalized and it's a core practice. And what's interesting is that core practice it doesn't just involve the health of the planet, it's the health of people overall. And so a purpose-driven brand is one that, um, which might be owned by a company, right? Um, there might be several purpose-driven brands owned by one company that um, seeks to um, have a position or a promise that will ultimately create a benefit 
you know, a positive benefit that is beyond the bottom line, beyond profit. So a positive benefit to people, a positive benefit to a culture or a society, or a positive benefit to um, a place or the planet. And so um, recently, a lot of brands have realigned to try to find their quote unquote purpose, their positive benefit. And sometimes, you know, they're just kind of a rehash of their existing benefits. But in other cases, some com some companies, they don't even articulate what that purpose is because they, they live it so internalized already. A great example of this, of course, is Patagonia, because, to use one within the fly fishing space and the broader outdoor, outdoor world, where everything they do from their supply chain to their manufacturing, to their marketing, to their grassroots engagement and activism, uh, their storytelling, is all connected back to a purpose to, you know, um, uh, basically protect the health of this planet, you know, uh, and um, and of course all the species on it that includes us. <laughs> so um, anyway, um, sometimes purpose-driven brand, uh, sometimes brands just have purpose-driven projects where you know they kind of diverge for a little while and work in an area where they're going to try to make a positive benefit, um, and others again internalize it. Um, others are just still learning how to do that. You know, there's a journey. It's a constant journey uh, of learning and transformation for, for companies. Um, it's by no means written in sand that suddenly every, you know, in stone that suddenly every business, just by even calling themselves purpose-driven or pursuing that agenda, are doing the right thing right off the bat. It takes a lot of effort and change and change management. Um, but so that's a little bit of a background on the purpose-driven side. But also, that can apply to people in the way they pursue their careers, too. So you can be purpose-driven. You can seek out um, and make choices in the places that you want to work at or that you apply to or the skills that you, you, know, that you bring into yourself, you know, as to develop your, your professional self. That can be purpose-driven, too, because you also want to create a positive benefit in the world. And what's interesting is, um, you know, just to bring it all back to fly fishing, I feel like, um, you know, we, we often talk about fly fishing as this lifelong sport that you can never master, that there's always something new you can learn. And I think of in many ways of the sport of fly fishing is absolutely being purpose driven. You know, you're looking to find a way to better yourself, you know, through the sport, not just the skills and the craft of, say, fly tying or fly casting, you know, or the diversity of fish you catch, but in your relationship to the natural world, you know, uh, understanding the environment, you know, the, 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 the river that you put your, you know, your feet in, um, the ecosystem that takes care of the, the target species that you're trying to, you know, fish for. Um, whether that's a redfish and, and, and a bayou or whether it's, you know, the headwaters of a, you know, of a spring creek, um, you know, at 11,000 feet, it doesn't, it doesn't matter there's a connection that fly anglers um, ultimately develop with the natural world that um, that I think could be described as purpose-driven. And oftentimes, and I saw this at my time at TU, you know, when you fall in love and, and have a deep passion for the natural world, you want to protect it. Um, you want to spend time learning more about it and educate yourself about it. And then soon you want to tell others. <laughs> and then you look for organizations and groups that you can do that with. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's a progression that that I think um, probably many of your listeners, listeners, and anglers will be familiar with. Absolutely, and 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 that's kind of um, a, a, a maybe a good a good segue into talking about kind of tying in that that purpose and also you know you having experience working with Trout Unlimited, Bonefish Tarpon Trots, and now. Uh, E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation um, and, and talking about protecting what we love. I mean, what, what are some of the things that stick out in your mind that are, are, are threats to the, the, the fish that we, we love to pursue? And, um, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let you run with that. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I learned from, from Chris Wood, I think it was like on the first or second day we were hanging out and he was, let, you know, filling me in on the breadth and depth of Trout Unlimited's reach. And he kind of held his hand up and he sort of said, you know, if this is the, 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 you know, the, the headwaters, you know, we want, and he was just looking at the veins of his finger of his hand. 
you know, we want to be connecting and restoring and protecting all of these different rivers that all are part of one ecosystem, you know, um, uh, from the headwaters to the bay. And um, one of the things that we realized is that the threats that um, are facing both the human species is is also facing all of the the the, the fish species that we <clears throat> that we love and care for and, and, and want to target on the fly. So um, and and frankly, it doesn't matter if that fish species is you know a thousand miles away you know um, from the source of these threats. So pollution is is obviously a big one. Um, and that manifests its in, in many different forms, from plastic pollution to um, waste disposal, um, illegal dumping, um, and then even you know um, man-made pollution that uh, can happen from stream degradation. You know, so for example, um, overgrazing. You know, there's these are all different kinds of pollutions. And then I think there's obviously larger, big forces that that companies are. Um, and organizations are are a part of willingly or unwilling. And that's, of course, climate change. You know, the amount of carbon that that we consume or put into the atmosphere um, or that we release into the atmosphere unknowingly or um, has a global effect, clearly, but it also has a hyper local effect. And I think um, we're seeing that more and more of that. And. Um, when we get a change in the in a weather pattern as a result, we know that species are impacted. You know, when when and you know, fly anglers, we we live by a calendar. We know when uh, the, the the Mother's Day caddis hatch is going to happen. We know when um, the uh, I forget the name of the worm the worm hatch. Uh, yeah, that yeah, 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 vipers. Yeah, um, we know that um, when. Uh, we know when my, when and where tarpon are going to migrate and where they're going to be as they you know go all the way around the panhandle and, and, and then make their way out as far north as Virginia. We don't have all this incredible information about species and we know when they're going to activate because that's when we take on all different kinds of manner of strategies to try to catch them. Right. So that's disrupted by all these threats, by pollution, by, by climate change and, and changes in weather patterns. Um, and I could go on, you know, BTT literally just came out with a report talking about pharmaceutical pollution being dumped into um, the ocean. Well, actually, it's into rivers and streams and it makes its way into the ocean and they're finding it in the in the flesh of bonefish, you know. Um, and so that obviously will have a chemical effect on that species. There are so many things. And it's, you know, at the end of the day, these things aren't happening naturally. They're happening because of our presence, humans' presence, you know, on the on the world. And you know, I think as um, a community that cares about this natural resource, it and has an outsized responsibility to it. You know, um, I think that we have the opportunity to to be advocates or voices for the kind of transformational change we need in order to protect life on Earth and these species if we want to continue to, to, to have a, an opportunity to fish for them. And listen, I love carp, okay? I love carp. And I've had some great carp fishing last year during the big cicada hatch out here in, um, in, in Maryland and in Virginia. And it was amazing topwater bites. And I wouldn't give them up for the world. Incredible. But I don't want to be fishing for carp for the rest of my life because there's nothing but warm water everywhere. You know what I mean? It's like so. You know, we we if we want the diversity of those those angling opportunities, you know, then we've got to step up and protect the protect the resource. You know, and restore right. it if we. Yeah, well, I, I'm so I I agree wholeheartedly with with with, with everything that that you said, and, and it's all and there's. There's so many different things that it can be that impact it that, that it can sometimes be overwhelming. But there's a couple of things that you said that I'm I'm, I'm gonna, gonna ask some questions that that I'm that I'm nervous about, frankly, Joel. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you. I'll my best you, to address what I can. <laughs> well, I, the the reason I say that is is what stuck out to me in some of the things you said was transformational change and protecting the resource and, and, and protecting what we all love and, and sort of 
working together to do that. And um, I'm, I'm curious or not, I guess I know a little bit about, about what you've done on the diversity, equity, inclusion front. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to shift gears and I want to make sure that we have enough time to, to cover this because it's really important to me. And I think it, would, it will be really valuable for uh, the listeners of this podcast. Um, so I guess I'll start and ask, um, you know, why we're seeing an increasing number of brands, Orvis is, 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 comes to mind, um, doing a lot more on the on the DEI front, but are you able to just mm-hmm. put a, a little bit more background on that, and then we'll we'll dive a little bit deeper into into what that means? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and 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 I think it's you know that the the DEI work is oddly enough, I do think is connected with the sustainability work, and I can explain what I mean by that. So, but let's start with the DEI stuff. So, this. Just to take a step back and talk about the fly fishing community, as, as everyone knows, it's been historically a white community and an, a, an older community. Um, now it's the boomers and before that it was the greatest generation. What we're seeing is, however, through social media and digital content, suddenly this explosion of media that shows this incredible diversity, you know, incre- you know young anglers. Um, we're seeing like multi-sport anglers, um, fly anglers. We're seeing people of color, you know, but we have to be careful to recognize that, you know, the digital reality, the the digital projection is not reality. You know, um, you look at the actual numbers, which are published almost annually by the Outdoor um, Industries Foundation, as well as a couple of other sources, you know, you know, you see some growth in the diversity of the sport, but it's very anemic and it's still very slow it's still predominantly a white guy sport, but it doesn't mean that it's closed off to other people. And when you're seeing people of color and more women um, get involved, one thing I think you're seeing is they want to share it. They want to, they, they, they just, and it's, it's the joy of this sport. Right. And so you see blog posts and videos and you see, Instagram posts and you see, you know, all these kind of big expressions of the joy of, of flying link from a unique perspective and identity. And, um, and I think that's remarkable. And I think it's great because it tells other people who may feel that maybe this sport wasn't for me, or maybe it's not for me, or maybe I don't know if I fit in, or maybe if it's maybe too, too much of a reach for me, they see people like themselves and say, you know what, it is possible to get into the sport. And then very quickly, they learn that the industry has wanted them all along and has set up a wonderful sort of three-tiered system where the novice can get in at the right price point and then be, you know, kind of moved up um, to better and better equipment um, as they gain their, as they gain flying fishing skills um, over a lifetime. Um, but um, certain certain organizations are clearly at the forefront of this. Orvis is one of them. I think with their 50-50 work, they took a huge risk years ago. They took all the shit and all the flack from the from from um, sort of the white guy mafia in fly fishing, um, and they just kept going. And as a result, you know they've had a tangible, measurable impact on the number of women um, fly fishing in the sport. And that is something that to be absolutely applauded um, and and lauded. And what's more important is we've also seen an explosion of women-owned fly fishing businesses. Um, uh, at this, at the same time, and I think there's synergy. You know, there, you can't exactly say one comes from the other, but there's synergy in seeing yourself and seeing people like yourself enjoying the sport and coming forward and taking um, ownership of that. And and that can be through businesses, certainly, um, and and entrepreneurship. I think the other thing is is that there were obviously many many women guides and many women in the sport of fly fishing who weren't being seen, who were always there. And I think that they they are now being seen. As far as people of color are going uh, in terms of fly fishing, of course, you know we've always had some incredible people of color and interesting um, as leaders and some legends within the sport. However, I think today we're seeing a younger cohort of people of color get involved because they are 
you know, a generation that is interested in um, group activities, you know, so you see a lot of group sports, group fly fishing, learning as a group. And then because they also have a passion for the outdoors and conservation, and it kind of all goes hand in hand for them. Um, and they love the excitement of storytelling. And so it kind of, you know, we've, yeah, maybe we are in a selfie culture, but that storytelling is a part now of the experience, you know, and we all know this as fly anglers, when we hold up that, that fish, or hopefully we have it partly in the water and partly out, and we take that shot, you know, um, it's not just for our memory. We want the people around us to know how much we love this sport and how much we care for, for, for the resource. So it's, um, it's nothing new. Now, I would say the DEI journey is connected to sustainability for many reasons. It's all about, you know, thinking about, do we want to be fishing in 50 years? I mean, that's the fundamental question. And if you're a business, you ask that question around who is going to be fishing in 50 years? What is that makeup going to look like? You know, where am I going to get my, 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 my next generation of anglers from? And then what do they care about, you know, and will there be a resource for them to fish? These are, you know, and this is the common ground and why DEI is actually connected to sustainability. And what's interesting is, and particularly here in the United States, listen, we have to deal with this legacy of um, sort of public water versus private land, mm -hmm. stolen land versus um, um, native land. And really respect that the place, the ecology, the systems where we are enjoying our sport, they have their own history. They have their own rich history. And just because um, a white rancher 50 years ago bought some beautiful stretch of land in, 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 in Montana and named it, you know, Purdy uh, Spring Creek, doesn't mean that that negates the hundreds of years of history that came before on that location, you know, and how people used and worked that land, its meaning, cultural, its value to ecologies, its value to the resource. All of these things are now kind of being considered in our fishing experience. It's no longer just, you know, mono e mono, man versus nature. It's really about a deeper understanding of what it means to be on that particular piece of land and fishing for that particular that particular species. Um, and I, I think a great example of this is um, fishing and particularly partic fishing for say steelhead in the Pacific Northwest, where the steelhead is not only um, on a general level, a great, a great fish to, 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 to angle for, it's deeply threatened in many ways, but at the same time, culturally and um, historically incredibly important um, to uh, native peoples in the Pacific Northwest and beyond. And then it's a boundary buster. This is the most thing of the most incredible thing about a steelhead. Imagine thinking about a steelhead swimming around in the Pacific, putting on fat, eating squid, eating shrimp. And then a mere months later in like Idaho, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it is one of the most, you know, it, it, I think the, to me, it's like, that fish is iconic. And I think once more people know about how far tarpon range and their interconnectivity of their species, it's the same thing, right? There's this idea that suddenly because we can put up a dam or we can say that this is a state line and that this DNR handles this issue and this DNR handles that issue. We've got to start fishing in a way where we are looking at the totality of these of our experience, who we are, what land we're on, where this species really you know, lives and roams and all the threats that we bring to it. And then taking a holistic approach to solving that. Now, I know the word transformational change is scary for a lot of people because, you know, we actually achieve change in small steps, little increments, you know, doing little things here and there. But transformational change happens when you have a whole community working on it and each people, you know, person in that community is taking those small steps. That's the power and the potential of the fly fishing community. And um, I've seen it leveraged, and I'm sure you have, and people who will be listening to this podcast, they'll have seen it leveraged in many ways over the years in different places. And there'll be many different stories about how, it's, how, how in a way, we could be a model for, for transformational change in other places, um, particularly in the outdoor sports, but also to, you know, 
other communities of conservationists out there working in their own in their own ways and uh, on their local ecologies. Yeah, I think that you know. So I love everything uh, that you just said, and I and I love the idea even of tying a place to understanding if while you're holding that fish, understanding how that fish came to be and the whole story and the history behind that, who was involved and, and how it all culminated in that, in that one moment that you caught that fish and, and it's all this history that's in, in, in your hand. Um, and I mean, that's just the, the love of, you know, I think fly angling and, and that experience and, in my opinion, is what transcends race or um, gender or, or anything, because everyone, if you have those types of experiences, then you can't, you can't not want to protect it forever, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, and, you know, like I said, in, in my opinion, but that, yeah, no, and I think I, I value that, and, and I want to, and I want to, add and push a little bit on that thought, you know, and maybe challenge you a little bit to think a little bit more about the notion that it transcends. I'm not sure that for me, it is a transcendent experience. To me, it's a formative experience. Okay, so, and I say this in a sense that oftentimes when we talk about diversity um we there's a there's a, a there is a kind of a thinking that somehow everyone should just kind of be equal and flat and kind of the same but then we miss out on the beauty of what the individual kind of brings to the party and i think a great example of this is um how wildfires in the west are being being handled right now so you know, there's been a, an awareness and a reemergence of the understanding that traditional knowledge and 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 local wisdom from um, the the original caretakers of that land and stewards of that land, native peoples, have had their own fire suppression and management process for hundreds of years on that land. But as that land was colonized and transformed with large scale um, farming and agriculture as well as forestry, and then the emergence of, 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 of cities, those, and of course, the, you know, frankly, the genocide of those peoples and the, the, the movings of those peoples, the transformation of the land stewardship through brutal, violent policies, that knowledge is not being applied. And so you're getting these incredible wildfires, you know, um, that really could be mitigated by bringing some of this traditional knowledge and wisdom back. The same thing can be understood, I think, in fisheries, you know, and is being applied in certain fisheries around, particularly in North America. Um, And I think what happens is that fish in your hand, you know, it it challenges us to, 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 to learn, it challenges us to learn more about all the things that are possible, I think is when I say it's formative, right? Just like fly fishing where there's no end to what's possible to learn about that experience. I think similarly by understanding the cultural history, I think you also gain something that you can apply in how you manage that resource going forward. And as well as um, uh, something new, you know, that, that, that you may not have considered before. Um, and so it's important to have diversity of thought, diversity of people involved in stewardship. You know, one thing I've learned in the last year at the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation is I've learned a lot about global biodiversity and the importance of protecting global biodiversity, not just for the continue, continuation of all species, including us, but also for the continuation of um, the local peoples who are stewards of that land. 80% of the world's, and this is the world's biodiversity, that is the diversity of, of life, the richness and rarity of species is a diverse life, can be found 
you know, under the stewardship of indigenous and native peoples, 80%, 80%. And so what does that mean? You know, it means that, and it's, it's hard to kind of put your head around it, right? You go, well, the United States is pretty big, right? As a geography, as a landmass. And you think, you know, okay, so where is this biodiversity? Of course, naturally it's along the equator, you know, it runs in a band around the entire planet, but it also shows up in amazing places like the, you know, the Rocky Mountain Corridor, California. Alabama, for example, in the United States is considered um, America's Amazon. It has the greatest biodiversity in the entire country. Just shy, a little bit, a little bit on the verge of California. Um, you can find more turtle species, more species of oak and hickory, uh, more darter species, you know, which not so much fun on a fly, but you know, we all know darter. Um, in Alabama, than at anywhere else in the world. That's just, you know, and, and unreal. No one, it's unreal, right? And, but, you know, to understand why that is, you have to look at both the natural history, but also understand the cultural history. You know, why is it that the first lands people, the, the, the indigenous people in North America made their biggest cities in Alabama when you look at pre-colonial history? It's because of the diversity on the land. Why is it that it became the center of the cotton belt, you know, um, because of the richness of the land and the biodiversity? These things, these things have cultural impacts, too. So when we think about something like tarpon and we think about how do we protect it, you know, you know, we, we, we have to realize that tarpon don't make a nest. <laughs> you know, they travel from Virginia to Texas. And um, if you have a spill in the Gulf, an oil spill in the Gulf, that affects the you know, many populations and the populations that it takes to achieve that full interconnectivity you know, from Texas to Virginia, the entire species. You know? So a lot of times we think about, you know, um, as a trout angler, you know, we think about that, those, those amazing wild fish, those little brookies we love to catch upstream in crystal clear creeks, you know, that water has to be clean because we're drinking it downstream in the bays, you know, in the Chesapeake and the Delaware and so on. And so it's, it's kind of all connected. And, and, this, and what I've learned about biodiversity and, and the need to protect it is that you, if you, if you, it's like a, a game of Jenga. If you start to pull too many pieces out of it, okay, with the various threats, plastic pollution here, um, uh, climate change there, and uh, pharmaceuticals in, in, in the waters there, it, it collapses, it collapses. And it will take not just one species out, it will take dozens of species out. And, you know, as much as I know local DNRs love to stock fish, <laughs> you know, I like wild, I like to, 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 to fish for wild things. And, um, you know, the other, the other reality is, is that um, I want to be there to fish for it. So if we lose some of these species, we may lose ourselves. You know, it, it, it's hard to think, how am I connected to a trout? How am I connected to, to a permit? Well, we, we are, you know, we are, we absolutely are, you know, and um, um, uh, I've learned that in my, in my, my recent time at the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation, where we are actually developing some science that um, measures and monitors biodiversity around the world. It's called um, aerial conservation. So basically they're using um, both uh, local obser observations as well as um, spatial observations through satellites uh, to understand um, uh, the intactness of certain habitats, um, how many species can be expected to be there, both discovered and undiscovered based on the intactness of that habitat. Um, and they're also learning about the threats because you can see these threats um, in great detail through, um, uh, through satellite mapping um, from forest fires to deforestation, large-scale agriculture. Um, and uh, uh, what's interesting is that, um, you know, when, and interesting and terrifying is that, yes, you can restock a, 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 a brown trout, you know, but if you lose the dozens of species around it, the, the insects, you know, then 
what's the point, right? The stream is dead. The stream is dead, right? Um, it's all about, you know, we always, we often talk about with fishing, it's all about the bug life. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever, Rick, fished where, or just been on a river where you've seen this incredible emergence of, uh, you know, a hatch. Yep. And then you realize there's no fish in there to eat the bugs. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you've ever seen that. I've, I've been on a couple of rivers like that where I'm like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like, where are the, where are the fish? You know, and, and you know, um, it happens, right? Um, uh, or vice versa. You go to a, an amazing river and um, you, you go to an incredible river to fish and um, you see these incredible fish and you know that they were just, you know, put there and there's no bug life. And, you know, you're like, oh, just put a, a bugger on them and just, you know, drag it across their head to catch something. And it's not, it's not the same experience. So. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I, I was just like, yeah, I, I totally make that connection. I mean, it's just, a, uh, I guess one of the things that, and, and I know that we're, we're, we're coming on top of the hour here, but there's a couple things that if maybe we can touch on um is in terms of so it um this was not my intent at the beginning of our conversation but you've done such a uh, an amazing job of paralleling biodiversity and even diversity equity inclusion in our sport are are there parallels or am i making that up in my mind and what can people like me do to increase diversity equity inclusion both on the DEI side, on the on the fishing side, as well as on the environmental side. Hmm. I think that's a that's I think that's a great uh, a great question. I think that um, you know specifically when we talk about um, the the science of sustainability, I think the scientific community well so science education for example just starting in way way back it, you know is that is an area that definitely needs um more um dei work you know it's just there this there is a growing number of of um black indigenous and people of color entering scientific fields and what's really exciting to see is that they're using Again, the same platform, social media and, and uh, digital video, um, influencer marketing and all these other things to raise their own profile, which again shows that we're a part of that, that, that space and therefore brings more people in. But I do think it's also the, the opportunities that happen in the, the little transactions day to day that also sustain DEI. So in other words, you know, we hire uh, diversity consultants, we hire sustainability consultants, we hire technicians and en engineers, we hire um, uh, communications folks, we hire, we hire people to fill out these roles. And I think the first step is always thinking, you know, is the pool of candidates I have, the talent, the opportunities, is it diverse? You know, or did I kind of just go to my, my go-to, you know, and did I put together a really good pool of candidates and ensure that when I put together that pool, that I was uh, I was creating opportunity for for other people who may not be seen. I think that's one thing that we can do as a day to day task. And I actually do that in my own hiring, um, uh, whether it's through a consultant um, or a contractor. And I think that applies um, uh, in the field of sustainability. I think the other thing we can do is we can. Um, raise up and elevate uh, those uh, really good stories that are that that can that can act again as a as a as an invitation to get more diversity into the field of sustainability and into um, conservation. Uh, and I think um, this is an area where the fly fishing community still has a long way to go. They need to be looking into a more diverse talent pool. Um, not just um, the, uh, the the guide uh, uh, talent pool, which is really where they, you know, it's kind of what happens, right? You guide for 10 years, five years, get burned out, go into, you know, go and go into something else, right? You go into uh, retail or you go into manufacturing or you go to one of the, the brands. And I think they, they ought to be doing the same thing. They ought to be thinking, okay, you know, if 
if my competitor is REI, if my competitor is public lands, you know, uh, Dick's new um, outfit, uh, if my competitor, you know, is Walmart, then I had to be thinking, okay, you know, they're going after the best and broadest pool of talent too as well. So talent is one area that you can make an immediate impact. Um, and in fact, I will say I have had, I have been consulted by people in the fly fishing industry on specific hires around increasing diversity in their, in their, in their, in their, in their staff. So I know people are asking the questions. The second thing I could say would be is, you know, kind of like on the, the end user side, on the consumer side, on the, the member side, on the market side, you know, be thinking about, okay, where do I stand? Um, the same way that we look at um, our, our accounting every month, you ought to be thinking about, you know, during that annual planning period, looking at your, your, your audience, you know, and your market and saying, you know, am I drawing from a diverse pool, you know, of opportunities here? Who else um, could use my, my experience, my product, my brand, my services, you know, and how do I bring them in, you know, as a potential target audience? And if I don't know how, who in my cohorts doing a good job of that, that I can check, you know, buy a cup of coffee or a beer with and get tips and strategies from. Um, so that's one, one area. And then thirdly, I think um, as far as um, um, ways to, to really, and this is sort of the secret sauce here of, of, you know, of achieving DEI is, is to make sure that you have a plan. You know, the reality is, is a lot of times people will do one-off things here or there. And having a plan is um, actually the thing that will keep you honest, right? It'll keep you accountable. Because then, you know, if you didn't complete the plan, well, you know, you're like, okay, then that's something that didn't happen for my business or my, you know, my industry. And, and I've got to go and, you know, and work on that, you know. And I think accountability comes with, you know, having a plan comes with accountability. If you don't have a plan, you don't have to be accountable for it. You can just say, oh, you know, things are tough and challenging and I kind of let it go, you know? So being responsible for it means having a plan and then trying it. And maybe you fail, you know, it's really hard, you know? Um, but having a plan is, is one of them. And the secret sauce to having a plan is you don't have to do it by yourself or alone. There are a number of very talented DEI consultants that are really interested in the outdoor space really interested in fly fishing. Um, and they're working with some of the top brands already. So if you ask around, you'll figure out really quickly who they are and you can kind of get in touch with them and have that initial conversation about how to work together. You know, that's, that's awesome. Um, and that's, you know, that's all of that aside from increasing DEI opportunities and it's, and, and it's similar to, to, with, with what I do on the sustainable business side and particularly around environmental uh, initiatives mm -hmm. is that they're just good business decisions. It, yes. would, it, it would be foolish to not see if there's an audience that you're not drawing from that pool. It would be mm -hmm. foolish not to consider all of the options, the best options that are available for talent. Mm -hmm. And it would also be foolish to what I call and is a lot of companies commit random acts of sustainability. It's like <laughs> right. you, you have the right, yeah, you, you had the right intention. It was, mm -hmm. good. it's just not part of a plan or a cohesive strategy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and all, everything that you're saying is, it, it just makes sense, right? I mean, from a, from the business side of it, it would be foolish not to do these things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it kind of goes back to that spirit of being a flying leader. We're always learning, you know, yep. you know, it's the same thing with managing our businesses and managing the organizations um, that we work with private or public, you know, there's, there's always something that you can learn from the, the, the yourself in terms of like your self-study, your staff around you. Um, and then, tr you know, continuing to, make sure, you know, to basically elevate your, elevate your game. And um, I think that uh, we're going through at the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation, our own DEI journey that we've just, just started on. And it's really important, right? Because we're talking about how do we do conservation in an ethical manner now? 
Um, it used to be um, that uh, you'd have a, a literally a group of people in a room somewhere decide on millions and millions of acres of land, or you know, um, suddenly locked up for 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 um, conservation, and that's very problematic. You know, very problematic. You know, um, people need to use land in different ways. There are cultural uses and commercial uses, and they they are they are connected. Um, and uh, uh, especially if you lock up land that uh, was historically managed by indigenous people too, that also has ramifications. Um, so, you know, to do conservation ethically today, you have to be very considerate um, of um, the history of the land, the cultural history of the land, the resources. And then you have to think a little bit beyond the boundaries. You know, if you have to think about how animals and insects and even plants migrate and move beyond these, you know, artificial boundaries that people set and realize that, you know, you may have to work in a coalition in order to achieve your goals. You know, it's not as easy as just sort of one group or one individual, you know, stamping out a place. It, it, it requires a, a, a group effort. And it, and, and, and this is why oftentimes, you know, people shy away from the work of conservation. It, it takes many years. It takes collaboration. Um, it's thankless, <laughs> a lot like sustainability. Um, and, uh, but it is, um, you know, it's ultimately rewarding when you know that, you know, the, the, you know, that particular species on that land has a shot at survival. Um, you know, uh, or that, you know, the next, the next generation is going to be able to enjoy it, you know. And is that, is that what keeps you going? Is that what, what, what gives you hope? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I have a, I have an eight-year-old daughter. She and I have, I've been slowly introducing her to fly fishing and we went fly fishing last, um, year during the cicada hatch that I mentioned, the brood X cicada hatch. And, you know, I didn't care if she caught a fish, you know, we were floating down the Shenandoah with my good friend, Travis Edens of Kingfisher um, fly fishing. And we were casting to rising carp. <laughs> How rare is that? Right. That's um, crazy. And I say not just like one or two rising carp, hundreds of rising carp on that river. No, I've, I've never seen that. That's wild. It was wild. I'll send you a couple of pictures um, and some video. And it, what any what I wanted to see was her engagement with the wild, you know, her just accessing that carp, that face of that carp coming out of the water, her realizing that there's life, you know, below that river, you know, and then the bugs falling in her hair and everything that she's swatting off and that are crawling over our yard are sustaining that river you know, all that biomass going back in, right? And um, just for her to experience all that. And partly out of, you know, I wanted to learn how to, you know, fish, but I wanted to learn how to connect to the natural world. And um, I had those experiences when I was young. I was very fortunate. My parents were absolutely in love with the natural world and they gave us many, many different experiences. But I think that what keeps me going is knowing that conservation is not a one-man job. It's a generational job. You know, you pass it down, um, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm proud that in a way, after you know, 20 years trying to sell freaking soda water, that I've, you know, got some clarity and got to a place where I could, you know, um, again, spend some of that energy putting that back into the world. You know, that's that's super inspiring and. Um, thank you for, for sharing that. And I think that's probably an amazing place to, to wrap um, and leave everyone with uh, some, for me anyway, just listening to that. That gives me hope and inspires me. So um, I'm really grateful for, for your time, Joel, and, and, and sharing your, 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 your knowledge. Um, and hopefully um, educating and, and enlightening some of us along the way. So I, I really do appreciate it. Well, I, I certainly appreciate being on Rick and, I'm, and I'm, I'm a fan and I'm, I'm excited that, you know, Emerger Strategies in your work is absolutely 
pioneering a space in fly fishing that was long overdue. And um, I, uh, I know that you, though you are the first, you won't be the last in transforming this industry. So, so I, I appreciate you, you know, and I appreciate your work. So thank well, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sustainable Angler. Uh, the podcast is available anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, uh, please give us a rating and review. And special thanks to Joel R. Johnson for joining me on this episode today. Thanks and have a good one.